0: Now as I was thinking and praying about speaking into this, almost immediately, and this is the the, the truth actually, almost immediately my mind went to Nehemiah 5 and and I I just really felt God spoke to me from that chapter. So I'd like you to turn please with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 because that's what I want to speak out of this morning. And it was, as I say, an almost immediate thought to look at this chapter and to learn from it. It was obviously a chapter I'm familiar with at some extent because I know that I have in the past, over the years, preached through Nehemiah. But I wasn't particularly thinking of it at that point. As I was praying and thinking about our finances, God took me back to Nehemiah 5. So let me give you a little bit of a background. And This is, I believe, a passage for today, for us and for all of us, whatever our situation and even if we're a member of this church or not. The story in Nehemiah... It's about building the wall of Jerusalem. And it's really a story about restoring the city of God, the place where God is worshipped, the place where, where the, the temple is, where you can actually meet the living God. And it had got into a terrible state. Jerusalem had been broken down, the wall broken down, it had been overrun by the enemy. And through a period of some years, Ezra, Nehemiah and others come to bring restoration And uh, Nehemiah is an amazing book, it's a key moment, or key period of months, when Nehemiah leads the people, quite a small number, into rebuilding the wall around the city, which is obviously key to defending the city, it's key to making it strong again. They rehang the gates, the gates are the place of praise and worship, and so quite Uh, a key passage in this history of, of, of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, when the walls are rebuilt. And I have, over the years, and I'm not alone in this, we, perhaps, in our sort of churches, have found God take us back again and again to Nehemiah as a prophetic story about what the church, what God's doing in the church in our lifetimes, over the last 30 or 40 years. God is restoring the church. I make no apology for that word. I think it's a little passé in these days, but God is restoring. He's building back things that may have been broken down and lost over centuries. The, the, the breaking down may have taken place as it did here. Not in just one go, but it was a period of different uh, uh, overrunnings by enemies. And, and God is restoring things that his people might be Properly declaring his glory. There might be somewhere to really worship and know the living God. That that the dwelling place of God might be restored to its former glory. And I believe the church, the church of Jesus Christ, is the place where people meet God. It is the place where the glory of God is known. And the church in our nation has been in a mess. You could argue it still is, because I believe the process of restoration is still going on. And although I am delighted when things happen suddenly and all sorts of exciting things happen, and we've seen a number of waves of the Spirit over the last 20 or 30 years, I'm delighted. Actually, into that, I also am very aware that God is restoring the church. He's building back principles, and they are sometimes very substantial about how church is and what church does. And we are still in that period of restoration. Now, the task of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding its walls, had to contend with a lot of opposition. Nehemiah had a lot of opposition. Much of it was this sort of thing, open opposition. Criticism. Scorn and mockery. What do you think you're doing? Intimidation. Threats about being, I would say, almost politically incorrect, about standing against the Persian king and what he would want to happen. There were all sorts of accusations and attacks thrown up Nehemiah through this book and particularly through the first half of the book. But in chapter 5, the process of rebuilding the walls, the process of restoring Jerusalem is actually, as it were, held up and indeed threatened by internal problems with the Jews, with the people of God. But they weren't purely problems caused by themselves. They were caused by external financial pressures. They really were. There were external situations that led to internal pressures of misunderstandings, failures to fulfil God's word, disputes even between one and another group of people. So we're going to read just the first 13 verses, but this was possibly one of the biggest threats to completing the task God had called them to do. This particular period, this episode. Right, verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back, bought, I beg your pardon, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who had been sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the usury that you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did As they had promised. Now, Israel's economy was in ruins at this point in its history. And as I said, this was partly due to two major financial pressures that weren't the responsibility of Israel, Nehemiah, or any of them. There were food shortages, a famine. Now, it wasn't a famine where there was nothing to eat but it was a food shortage. And as a result, the price of food was going up and up. The other pressure on them was the king's taxes. The taxes that the Persian king demanded were very high and I think probably had been raised. And everybody had to pay the king these taxes. They were nothing to do with Nehemiah, they were nothing to do with the people, they were something they had to pay to the Persian authorities. But they were uh, getting higher all the time. What was happening, though, was an ungodly reaction within the people of God to those problems. They weren't responding to the pressures in the light of God's word, or at least some of them weren't. And the overall result was that everybody was depressed and distracted and oppressed by the financial problems, and God's work was being snarled up, in fact, was stopping uh, altogether. Let me just briefly repeat but spell out in more detail what the problems they were facing were. Because it is very interesting and relevant. It really is. As I said, food prices had skyrocketed. Does that sound familiar to you? Anybody been to the supermarket recently? I I do actually know about food prices, although I'm a bit of an unreconstructed male. That means my wife does most of the shopping. I do actually know about them, and I realise it is quite expensive nowadays when we go and do our shopping and that has nothing to do with us personally it's told all the time we're told that aren't we especially by our politicians world food prices whatever but there's a bit of truth in it and food prices here it's skyrocketed. and feeding a large family literally was a problem that's literally the problem you can find it in uh, those opening couple of verses people had lots of children were really struggling to feed them Now, here's another thing which sounds slightly familiar in a way. Verse 3, people were mortgaging. Yeah, what a modern word. They were mortgaging their land and their houses to keep going. Basically, they were doing what we do. They were sort of not completely owning. In their case, they might have been, as it were, remortgaging, as we might put it, and getting money for their buildings and for their land. They had Stuff that, this is probably different categories of people. People who actually owned land, owned property, were having to mortgage it to have enough money, not only to pay for food, but here's the other one, which is touched on in verse 4. The king was exacting heavy taxes. And they were mortgaging their property in order to borrow money to pay taxes. Again, I think that sounds quite familiar. I might come back to that in a moment. Matthew Henry, when he's writing on this in his commentary, says, Hard times and hard hearts made the poor people miserable. What a lovely sentence in a, a beautiful way of putting it. Hard times and hard hearts. They were hard times for the reasons I've just told you. But they are also hard hearted people involved, which were making things much more miserable. Some people saw the financial difficulties and pressures as an opportunity to make money for themselves. And that's literally what was happening. They were the people who had enough resources, for example, to lend money and charge interest. And in verse 11, it talks about this hundredth part for a month. Well, according to one commentator, that probably means 12% interest. That, that The people were, 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 lending, were lending to people money and then those people were paying 12% interest to their fellow Jews on the money they were borrowing. So they had a difficult problem made harder They were actually having to repay the interest as well. People were taking people's land as a sort of uh, security and giving them money, but then the interest payments and the various things, the usury element to it, was making it very difficult for anybody to get their land back. Now, that is a serious situation, and we'll talk a little about it in a moment. Not only because of the financial pressures, but in Israel, owning the land of Israel was important. The fact of not taking interest from your brothers was important. And not going into slavery, particularly to Gentiles, was vitally important. And I'm not going to have time to explore that all today. But let me assure you, if you read Exodus around 22 and around there, you'll see that there were many specific things God said in His Word that they were not doing. And those three things were all part of that. Because this was all the people of God together. But the, let's start, go back, a, let's wind back a moment. The problem sounds very familiar, doesn't it? An economy is struggling. There is literally a sort of credit crunch. People are having a mortgage and they're paying high interest on their mortgage and the pressures begin to tell on the people of God. I don't know about you, when you last filled your car up, but it's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Even if you have quite a modest little thing like I drive around. I know you're going to pray for me, my problems with my Ford Focus. I actually like my Ford Focus. I've, I've grown to love it. Especially it's not squeaking now. When it was squeaking, it used to irritate me. But... Anyway, but even filling my Ford Focus tank is nearly 50 quid. Well, only a few months ago, it was about 30. I mean, less than a year ago. I mean, it's quite a big jump. And some of you with those great big diesely things, well, I don't know, you've probably taken a mortgage out to fill them. And so actually, it really is a reality that things are quite tough. If you not only add the food, the taxes, I I personally think, I've got to be careful not to be political, I think there's been an awful lot of stealth tax. And you realise how much we pay tax on practically everything these days. And um, I don't know whether I'm just funny or not. Well, I am funny, but I don't know what, you know, odd. But I got my pay slip and I thought, I've paid more tax, not less. Now, I don't know. It seems to be a combination of all these funny, it's so complicated, isn't it? National insurance, the 10p goes and the 20p there and this, that. And in the end, you think, I seem to have a few pounds less, not more. I don't quite know if I'm just, and you think all this hullabaloo and in the end, we seem to just pay more. And it's sort of how it feels all the time. You know all the hullabalooing goes on, and in the end, whether you're whatever level you're at, you seem to sort of think, well, actually, in the end, I'm paying more, and, and the tax burden, frankly, in our nation is pretty high. If you read uh, about comparisons with other nations, uh, obviously some are higher, but a vast majority aren't. And uh, I, just something on uh, the news, which is full of the stuff at the moment, but just one one thing caught my ear: um, lorry drivers complaining about the tax on diesel. And uh, the, 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 the English lorry drivers were saying, we pay it was something like 1.24 a litre for our diesel, pound 24 pence. And, and Spanish lorry drivers are paying 83 Spanish again. Oh, they have a lucky week. They're paying 83, the equivalent to 83p a litre. And we're trying to compete. And he thought, fair point. And the difference is tax. Obviously, the petrol's pretty well the same worldwide. So actually, we are. Quite a heavily taxed nation. And it brings precious pressure on us, just as it did here. And uh, uh, there we are. Look, put it up. There's Times, Monday. It's got that jolly Spanish footballer on it. There you go. Um, they seem to be getting it everywhere today. But actually, that was the headline on Monday. Families cash fears, worst for 26 years. And you could have picked that headline probably on many other days. This is real to all of us this is real to all of us, that that there is a pressure on finances. And uh, it it is very real. Ordinary people struggling and wondering how to make ends meet. Feeling to some extent out of control of the events. And I think we all do that. You know, whether it's food or oil or or, or just whatever it is, you feel somebody somewhere is making a killing out of this. And they are. This week, uh, a friend of Ours, who lives in the Middle East, actually lives in Kuwait, sent me, as she randomly does send us, these sort of, whatever they are, attachments with little video things, and I've been to Dubai. And so she sent this little video thingy, I don't know the name for anything I'm talking about, that comes on a computer and you press a button and you can watch a video. That's what I'm talking about, right? So, and so she sent one to Dubai. I mean, it's almost obscene. Frankly, it is. You know, the, there's the, these huge towers, these islands that look like palm trees. You can see them from outer space. There's, it's just opulence gone mad. It really is. You know, a quarter of the world's cranes are in Dubai. 25% of the world's cranes. And they've got the highest tower of this now. And actually, you think, what's that built? That's built on petrol money. That's oil. Every time you fill your tank, remember you're helping people like that to get more and more rich Somebody's coffers are getting bloated. It may, it's also when you see the, the, the profits on the, the, you know, the BPs and SOs. It's not purely the Dubais. But there's a sense in which it's out of control for an average person. The average person sticks it in there knowing that the government uh, is getting a huge slice of every litre, knowing that these oil companies and you feel, what can I do about it? You know, I'm giving them money all the time, making them build some glass house that's about 60 thousand feet high or something you know you think what are we talking about but that's where the money's going it doesn't seem to be very useful and it feels out of your control so what was nehemiah's reaction to this situation that's what i want to quickly get on to well we've obviously got to realize it's not the same quite for us but it's instructive and god wants to speak to us out of it in about verses 6 to 13 you see what he does first of all he calls the people together and actually he reminds them of god's word God's principles. Now, that's where the stuff kicks in about Exodus 22 and other chapters. He says to them, look, this is not the way God has told us to be. And he lays out several things that they would have known. And in verse 9, this is the phrase that I link, sums it up. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Basically, he says, we've got to walk in the fear of God And avoid the reproach of the enemy. The enemy will use this to exploit it. He'll be delighted to undermine what we're doing. This is a time for us to walk in fear of God and obey him. He also points out, and I think this is an interesting point, that if everybody obeys God, that is the rich, noble Jews and the poor Jews, everybody together obeys God, the burden of these circumstances will be evenly spread and they will get through it. And he would then argue, and does, if you all do what I'm doing, we'll get through this. That's what he says, and he himself gets right involved in that. And in the second half of the chapter, he says even more about himself. And he basically says, though the pressures are out there, if we do it God's way, we will not have a problem. And if you all do what I'm doing, we won't have a problem. We will get through it in that sense. So he then gets the people to commit themselves to doing things God's way. And as a result of that... This particular attack, if you like, on the building of the wall is surmounted, and there's further opposition in chapter 6, but it's a different style of attack. There's an enemy all the time. So this particular crisis is broken through. So I'm learning from Nehemiah. I felt God spoke to me out of this chapter quite clearly. And so I'm actually going to take just a few minutes, it's not a lengthy thing because you do all know this, to remind you of some biblical principles and practices, just to remind you of what God says. Now, I believe, and this is an act of faith, this is not based on knowledge, particularly, as you'll see in a moment, but it is a genuine, deep conviction I have. I believe that if every member of Winchester Family Church keeps to what I consider biblical principles about giving, we will always have all we need for all God's called us to. Now, that I have utter conviction. It is a challenge, But it's not a challenge meant heavily. Like Nehemiah, let's just say, if we do this like God says to do it, we'll be fine. And that's honestly, honestly what I believe. And I'll substantiate that a bit more, in a sense, as we go through. In a sense, we've got to all walk in the fear of God. We've got to keep our focus on God, even in a time of financial pressure. We want to avoid the reproach of the enemy. Who would love us to stumble and fail and wants us to? And so despite the financial circumstances, we have to say, well, God's work isn't destroyed by credit crunches or even hindered, not even destroyed. We press through economic difficulties. Now, the answer in times of economic difficulties, and I will be drawing on experience. I am not just a, a positive Thinking type, oh, it's all going to be okay. I have lived through 30 years of giving to God, and I've seen worse economic circumstances than we're experiencing today. And I'll make brief references to them later. I've had a mortgage payment which is on 15% interest. And some of the rest of you in this room will know that. I've been, Marion and I have tithed when inflation is over 20% in the 1970s. Now I tell you, it works. Okay. Now, we're going to learn God's way's work. We're just going to remind ourselves of that. We want to be out of reverence to God. We want to be out of love for God, but of faith and obedience that we do not back off biblical principles. There's a little summary of, of, of uh, Nehemiah's feelings, I suppose. in, in ver- We haven't read it. Verse 15, just the very end of 15 and into 16, the last sentence of 15. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work and we did not acquire any land. Basically, we didn't make a killing out of these problems. We kept our focus on what we were doing. And it says, out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Now, I think that's, a, that, that's good. And that's his example. Okay, so what I want to do is just bullet points, really, in effect. Most of them are scriptures. Just to stir your faith and action... Hopefully to encourage most of you, because I trust it will be in harmony with how you live and, and give anyway. But also to stir you that now of all times is a time to keep our focus on God's word and to fear the Lord and do things his way. So let me remind you a few biblical principles, a few scriptures to go up. First of all, Luke twelve fifteen. Be very quick with these. Jesus is speaking. He said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now that is a fundamental principle of scripture. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. The world would say it does. That is a stinking lie. Your life is nothing about what you own. That really tells us very little. Not only does it tell us very little Anyway, I have found over 30 years as a pastor quite surprising how people who, who have quite obvious good quality things, houses and cars, can be very heavily in debt. So it doesn't even tell you sometimes, what, it, and that doesn't mean everybody like that, I hasten to add, but it doesn't give you a full picture of anything. Now, I'm not being, despised. I'm just saying, remember, let's, this is a time to keep our eyes on the real, don't let the world's panic and pressure get to us. Let's be on a guard against all kinds of greed. Let's, there's all kinds of greed. There's the greed of having loads, loads of money stuff, the 1980s, but there's a greed, too, of sort of keeping everything I've got for myself. It's all to do with not relying on the right source. It's God. He's our provider. So just be, watch out. In a time of economic pressure, strangely enough, all sorts of natural, but not necessarily healthy, worldly pressures come in on us. We just have to be on our guard. Let's look at the next scripture, Matthew 16. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be, Also, basically, material things are not where it's really at. (laughs) It's at where spiritual things are. How you use material things will bring eternal value from them. And I've said this, I know, many times before, but it's true. Every time I say it, it's true. It's true this morning. That if you use money or possessions for the kingdom of God, you give them eternal value. When you don't, and obviously we sometimes, all of us do just use them, they very quickly dissipate their value's gone. But if you've got a car and you give people a lift to an alpha, for example, they get saved at the alpha, there's something eternal that's come out of you sacrificing your time and effort and money with petrol to bring them. And it's that simple little thing. We have to remember how it works. We're stewards of what God's given us. These things will pass. They don't really belong to us. When we go to heaven, we won't take anything with us. We won't take anything of the sorry of the material things with us. What we will take with us is us and our Christian character, and the fruit of the Spirit, and the things we've done with what we've had. We take that with us. The person who got saved on your sofa, because you were friendly to them and gave them a cup of tea, they'll be sort of some of your fruit. The sofa won't go with you to heaven, however pretty and leather it is and expensive it was. It's what hap- you know, it, Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a sense in which we need to keep our eye on God's principles all the time, especially when financial pressures are pressing in. And at the end of that, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our giving is, in a sense, a measure of our love for Jesus. I know many of you are very, very good givers, but I just think we need to remember who we're giving to. We're giving to Jesus Christ. And because our treasure is somewhere else, not here. I remember God vividly taught me that when we started tithing in the mid-70s, and I had such a useless car, and it was awful, and I was so dif- hated driving it. Marion was fine, because ladies are okay with things like that. But I hated driving this Citroen Amy. You don't even know what it is, I bet half of you. I'm not talking about the trendy De Chauveur. I'm talking about the Amy. It's the most untrendy, useless car. It's like a lawnmower with a load of metal around it. and And, and I... You know, I was so embarrassed. I was a school teacher in a boys' school, fourteen hundred boys. I mean, I just got mocked. I mean, they overtook me on their bikes, some of them. And I, and I just, I'm driving this thing. You know, I could hear you coming, sir. <laughs> and and, and uh, you know, I. But I felt God spoke to me and said, "Well, what you know? What's your value system?" In the end, you're you're investing in a kingdom. Because I knew if I stopped tithing, I could probably get a bank loan and buy a different car. So, But I I felt God sort of just saying, you know, come on, it's a time for you. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart? My heart's with you, Lord. My heart's in your kingdom, Lord. I want to invest in your kingdom. That's why I'm driving this beat-up old car. Now, could you replace it sometime? Which he did eventually, about a year later when I'd learned the lesson. So. You know, God will provide, but it, it, it went, it got us places, um, slowly. But the thing is that God taught me lessons out of that. And you just have to learn them, and I continue to have to learn them. But it's a very precious lesson. My treasure and heart must be in the same place. They're with Jesus in the kingdom. That's another principle. Let's go on quickly. 2 Corinthians 9. These are just biblical principles. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, that principle is nothing to do with the world's economy. That is the economy of heaven. And that has no relationship and no relevance to credit crunches or to oil prices. Amen? That works whatever's happening. I can assure you, over more than 30 years ago. that works whatever's happening. And you have to have faith like that if you're going to be a real Christian in the real world. Dealing with real problems. If we're going to build walls in times of trouble, we need to be people of faith. It's not just my faith or the few leaders' faith for building the church. It's our faith. That we will put God first. We believe if we sow generously, we will reap generously. The Lord is our provider. We believe that if we do it with the right attitude, and that is so important. Verse 7. It's not grudgingly or of, of, of compulsion, but it's cheerful and in faith. And so if you're not, don't do it, but get, find why you aren't and get it right. And then do it right. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is about provision. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, that's pre major promise you will abound in every good work. And then later on in the same chapter it says, you'll be able to be generous on every occasion. I personally believe that is a faith thing. We live by that. I say to God, I, you know, Lord, I want to honour you, I want to do it cheerfully, I want you to meet all our needs and give us enough to be generous on every occasion. Generous appropriate to our resources. You know, I can't buy someone a car, but I could buy them a dinner or I could give them a couple of books, you know. So, But, but wherever you are, the, the, basically, I'm, I'm not in fear and panic. I can live out of those precious verses, understanding I do need to sow if I'm going to reap. I do need to give. There is a sowing and reaping principle, and it applies whatever the world's economy is doing. Let's move on. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3. This is about the Corinthian, uh, no, it's about the Macedonians, I think, not to the Corinthians written. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. I haven't given you many verses, but the verse before tells you that these, uh, Macedonians, uh, were, uh, I've, I've forgotten actually if it was there, but whoever they were, they were in a period of poverty and severe trial is the phrase. Even in a time of difficulty, they gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability. That is a sort of biblical heart principle. Free choice, cheerful, we saw in the last verse, so it's not to be grumpy, but it's a principle of spirit that it's as much as you're able and beyond, even, again, in a time of hardship. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, is another principle. Instruction directly from the Apostle Paul. On the first day of every week, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What's the lesson out of that? Well, basically, our giving should be systematic, planned. It's good to be spontaneous. It's good to be spontaneously generous. But actually, our regular giving is planned and systematic. It's not done just like what's left over at the end of the month or, oh, I feel like giving this week or this month. No, no, no. You know, oh, you know, there's been a drop in the mortgage rate, I'll give a bit more something. We don't think like that. We we plan and budget, hopefully at the beginning of a year, how we're going to give to God. It's proportional as well. It says in keeping with his income. You can't give what you haven't got. There's a proportional element to Christian giving. And this comes out throughout the Bible, brothers and sisters. It comes out in the Old Testament and even is sort of involved in Nehemiah's situation. We'll see that in a moment. And it comes out right through in the New Testament. That if you've got a lot of money, God assumes you will give more. (laughs) Because the proportions are relevant. And actually Jesus is very conscious, not so much of what you give, but of what you don't give. So, someone could give £10 and it might be 20% of what they've got to give. Someone might give £100 and it might only be 2% of their potential giving. Now, Jesus, looking at the temple treasury, was not looking at whether it was £10 or £100. He was looking at what it cost the person. What was, the, what was it out from? What were the resources it came from? Now, this isn't meant heavily, but it is meant practically and it's what was happening in Nehemiah's day. Those who are wealthier have a greater responsibility, but those who are poorer have an equal responsibility. In a sense, the proportions might be very different, but we, if you're giving 10%, you give 10%, whether you're on a six-figure salary or on the, the national minimum wage. Because that's how, that's how it works in the kingdom of God. That is the reality. That means there's an even sacrifice. It's jolly hard when you're on a very low salary to give 10% of it. And it's jolly hard when you're on a high salary. But it might actually, you sometimes, sometimes you think, well, I'm giving a lot of money. I perhaps don't need to do 10%. Look, I think the whole principle of Scripture is you carry the weight that God's entrusted you with. That's how it works, brothers and sisters. That's how it works, Old and New Testament. It's in proportion. As the Lord's blessed you, as the Lord's been good to you, you are able to be good and generous as well. But that doesn't take any responsibility off the poorest of the poor. You will find that even the very poor people in the Bible are encouraged to put God first with their wealth. It's a universal principle. But God would look at that dear widow putting her little mites in and say, that was well worth, that was a a costly gift. And he, he, he sort of judges it a little differently to how we do. And that's a principle of Scripture, which is what I'm looking at. Let's talk briefly of a few biblical practices. A few biblical practices. There's, you know, guidelines. How much do we give? Well, actually, the truth is, and it is the utter truth, in the New Testament, there is no law about how much you give. The Gospel is totally free. You are not saved by tithing. You are not saved by giving a penny. And in actual fact, you don't have to give a penny to go to heaven. The thief on the cross didn't get a chance to tithe and he was in paradise uh, within hours. And, and, and to be honest, that's how it is all through the New Testament, not just for people on their deathbed. You know, there's no element of your law keeping about the gospel. But So we're not in the realm of law. But if we're in the realm of being the people of God and responding in love and grace and gratitude, there's a pretty fundamental principle. If the people of the old covenant were tithing, that seems a fairly modest goal for people of grace. And I remember God speaking to me very powerfully about that back in the 1970s as a young married couple, Marion and I. I mean, I'd been giving what I thought was quite generous amounts And, and then God spoke to me about tithing. Think, can't you even make up, can't you get up to that level? I mean, they did that in the law. I mean, actually, if you read the New Testament, some people are giving everything away. They get, sell lands and give the whole thing. and I know people are that generous today. They give massive amounts. But, you know, that's a great privilege. Some people have a gift of giving. But I'm looking at a sort of ordinary guideline. Not a law, but a sort of guideline. Something to aim at. Well, I would say the tide is a very good one. That's 10%. A tenth. Now, obviously, in... Grace, you know, that's up to you. But if you're looking at a target, it's a pretty good one to try and hit. And it shows a certain gratitude and faithfulness, which is at least in harmony with biblical principles. I also say that tithing as a principle goes back beyond Moses. You'll find Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, giving a tenth to Melchizedek. And that's 400 years before Moses. And Abraham is also the father of faith. So I think you are a bit more into the realm of a general principle with tithing beyond just the Mosaic law. It does seem to be a guideline through Scripture of tithing. Very simple, practical guideline. What it meant was, you got ten apples, you gave one to God. You had ten sheep, you gave one to God. Ten sheaves of corn, one went to God. We'll talk about how it went to God in a moment. But it was also linked to another principle, you gave the best to God. When you got your first apples, you gave your first lot to God. You didn't give him the mouldy ones left over at the end of the season. Or the lame sheep, which are literally practical details in the Old Testament, the one that had damaged testicles so it wouldn't breed. I hope, excuse my being so earthy. But this is what Scripture says. You, you actually don't give the leftover thing that's no good. You give from the top and not the bottom. That's part of it as well. And a final linked in principle is that in the Bible, and I would argue, particularly in the Old Testament, but I think the implication of the New Testament, is that special projects like famines in other parts of the world or buildings were over and above the ordinary giving. They weren't, that weren't, they weren't part of the ordinary giving. The, the building project or the other major project like giving today to, uh, to New Frontiers would have been over and above the ordinary giving. Okay, quickly on. Here's another biblical practice. Money given to God was used to release people to serve God. In the Old Testament, Levites and priests. In the New Testament, you find evidence of apostles and elders being supported by finance. I'm not going to say any more on that, except this is about where do you give? So how do you give? Where do you give? How? Well, this sort of proportions, the guideline of scripture, but where do you give? What do you give to release people to serve God? That's one. Here's the next one. Some of the tithes and offerings were used to help poor and needy. Again, that's Old Testament and New Testament. And these were the two, by the way, main outlets of your giving for God, Old and New Testament, to release people to serve God and to meet needs, particularly amongst the people of God. So those were two main outlets. As I say, the needs were often within the community of faith. Here's another principle. Spiritual leadership was given the money to distribute it. Again, you will find that in Old Testament and New Testament. It was a community thing. Once again, we live in a culture which is very individualistic. There's nothing wrong with you making your own choices about generosity. Of course not. But biblically, and we want to be biblical, Old and New Testament, there is a community element to giving. That you laid it at the apostles' feet in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you gave it to the Levites and priests, and actually they distributed it to the poor and needy. And so on and so forth. Now, actually, that is a very important biblical principle. There is nothing wrong with being spontaneous, of course, and and, and I I hope you are. And you can probably give to all sorts of things, just privately. But I think biblically, and this is the key, remember a church like ours has absolutely no support, humanly speaking, from any other organisation anywhere. In fact, we give over 10% of our income away to others. Just given an offering this morning to others. So the only human source of money here is the people who give in this church. Though we all look to God to provide all the time. Now I think this is an important principle. That's why I don't apologise for labouring it. I think in the Bible you gave where you were spiritually fed and where The the spiritual leadership you were under, broadly it was usually a people focus rather than a building focus, I guess. But you gave to the vision of those people. The apostles would decide, I mean, there would be famines all over the the Near East in the first century. But they decided, we're going to give to the, the needy famine in Judea. Because we're going to give to our brothers and sisters in Judea. It wasn't people all sitting around saying, well, I know some starving people in Assyria. And I know some stuff. Now, these you could could say, John, this is a bit controversial. It is a bit controversial. I believe your main outlet for giving is the local church, brothers and sisters. I believe that is the main way you give to God. I believe it's the main way you sow seed in good soil. I really, really do. Utterly do believe it. I believe that it is a very important principle, although the choice is yours. In a sense, if you can't trust the local leaders, it does throw up questions if, if you can trust them with other things. And that's a personal decision you have, you have to make, of course. But I think we, we focus our giving on the church wherever we are, when we're there. And so as I finish this morning, I want to say something a bit more personal. Nehemiah was not embarrassed to refer to his own example. I would say, brothers and sisters, and wherever you come from, I want to say this to you. It's not only merely to the members of the church that I'm leading. I would say, all I'm asking any believer to do is exactly what Marion and I have done for over 30 years. Just asking you to do what I do, and God knows we do it. So I say this with confidence before you. I'm not going to talk about amounts, but I am going to talk about principles We have given a tithe of our income to the local church where we belong for over 30 years. And when there have been extra gift days, of which I have, Marion and I have given to scores, building funds at Hastings, things at Stoneleigh, relief funds, we always do that extra to our regular giving. Our regular giving never changes when there are gift days. I don't think like that. I pray for extra to give gifting If I haven't got it, I don't give much to the gift day. I don't stop the regular giving. That's the way we operate, I'm just saying. That is there. Now, I'm asking God for miracles often for for the gift days. I'm saying, God, will you give us something special? Because we're scraping the barrel a bit for this gift day. But the regular giving is... I don't think, well, I could use that for the gift day. I don't think like that. I'm just telling you what I do. I believe it's a principle. Now, we do find that God provides for us frequently for gift days, and it's been wonderful. We plan our giving at the beginning of a year. We plan, and I would consider my our uh, tithing, as I'd call it, I think it's a little more than that these days, I would consider that as a priority as much as our mortgage. I would say that is up there at the top, of, and it's the top, of when we're looking at our annual budget. Over and above holidays and clothing allowances and all that sort of thing. Just how we live. Now, we are clothed. I've got some on this morning. You'll be relieved to hear. And we do go on holidays. And We went on a lovely holiday with our grandchildren, which we actually, bluntly, we paid for it, and we asked God for the money for that in the middle of the gift days. And God does provide. But you have to operate God's way. It has to become a way of life, brothers and sisters. not something you try for six months and see if it works. You live like this, whatever the economy Now, we have lived like this through a number of things. We started in 1970 when inflation was over 20% when we started tithing. I have tithed when my mortgage had a 15% interest rate on my mortgage. I've tithed through the ERM and Black Wednesday and negative equity when one of my fellow young elders at Hastings had bought a flat with a big mortgage and suddenly was finding, we've talked about it, you know, his flat was worth a fraction of what he paid for it. People experienced those things in the early 90s. We bought a church building in 1992 in Hastings. It was not, humanly speaking, a very sensible time to buy a building, but God did it and he provided for it. God does provide in times of economic difficulty. It is an amazing walk of faith, and sometimes it's scary, but God does do it. I can honestly say, Marion and I have found God has met all our needs for over 30 years. More than met them, actually. I can honestly say that we never have masses sitting there waiting for something to do with it, but we always have all we need and enough to be generous within our appropriate sphere of of life. It honestly is, God does these things. That's how it is. We all live by faith. (laughs) That's how it is. I mean, it's not just the leaders live by faith. We all do. You have to live by faith to survive as a Christian in this world. This time, Nehemiah was for all the people. All the people were struggling with it, and all the people had to get on board with God's principles. Nehemiah couldn't do it just by doing his own. He couldn't say, well, I'm doing it right, so we'll get through. No, no, no. He couldn't do it. So you've all got to get lined up with what God said. that's basically what he did in that chapter. So as I close, I just want to encourage you. Many of you are probably matching us and beyond us. I don't think we are great saints. I know people will be far more sacrificial than we are. And I want to thank you and I want you to say, keep going. Some of you will be the same and I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to know this is the right way to live. Now believe God for the food bills and the petrol bills. Come on, let's get into faith on it and for the mortgages. And for his provision in other areas. But some of you might not be living like that. I want you to line up. I want you to line up with the word of God. I want you to line up with the principles I've laid out. It's totally between you and God. I just want you to know that there are things in the word of God that I believe if we apply them, we will just get through this year as well as any other year. Honestly believe that.